Thank you guys for leading that, those songs. It's not a coincidence. There's actually no such thing as a coincidence. And Sharon, how long? Maybe five, six, seven years ago, we had a half a dozen words that we tried to take out of our vocabulary because the words, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as coincidence. Um, God is in absolute control of everything that happens. And the next person that says it's a coincidence, I'm going to stop you on it because there's no such thing. So what my statement was almost going to be, it's no coincidence that we sang those songs this morning, because those songs speak to this sermon. And uh, Joel and Becca and I, and we never talk about, well, they know what I'm preaching on, but I never talk about songs. They've offered me the opportunity to pick songs, but I've never taken them up on that. So it is no coincidence that we sang those songs with this sermon. So Here's what I want you to do. Take your Bible in one hand, and if you brought a notebook, we're still taking notes here at Cross Point. Take your notebook and open it up to Mark chapter 12. We are now in our 12th week of working our way through the Gospel of Mark at the, at the incredible pace of one chapter per week. Our goal in this and I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again next week. Our goal, our purpose, is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. That's not what this is about. Let me say that again. Our goal is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. Our gospel is to get the Gospel of Mark through us. That's two entirely different things. And so our primary goal is to put, get the Gospel of Mark through us. In order to do that, we need to take the things that we talk about on Sunday morning. And we need to do our best to apply those things to our life so that the Holy Spirit can do what only he can do, change our lives from the inside out. So our secondary goal or purpose is to study one passage, one paragraph from each chapter as we work our way through. So a week ago, I asked myself the question, are we going too fast? I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. You know, it's easy for me to stand here and say our goal is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. But in all, I mean, that's just what we're doing. We're getting through the Gospel of Mark. But I don't want us to get through this so fast that we don't have time to apply what we've already talked about. What we're, I'm hoping that we're applying to our life. So we're going to take a couple minutes this morning. And we're going to go back and we are going to remind ourselves of some of what we've talked about in these first 11 chapters because it will do us little or no good if we get through all 16 chapters and we haven't changed the way we're living, right? It was D.L. Moody that said, God didn't give us the Bible so we would increase our knowledge. He gave us the Bible so we would change the way we live. So it doesn't do us any good to get through 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark if it doesn't impact our life. Now, we could take time right now, and we could have one at a time, everybody stand up and say, what have you gotten out of these first uh, 11 sermons? We're not going to do that. We're not going to put somebody on the spot. But I just hope that each of us, including me, is searching my heart and trying to figure out, okay, now what is it that Mark has said that I want to apply to my life. So here's what I want us to do. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to go through, we're going to take 
30 seconds on each of these chapters, so get ready. Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is inviting these young men to come and be his disciples. All the way through, all the way through last week, we have taken and given each chapter a name, and I encouraged you to write that new chapter title near verse 1 of each chapter. So when we were back in Mark chapter 1, we named this chapter, Come Follow Me. Remember, one of the things, one of the principles that Mark uses repeatedly in his gospel is that Jesus did not do ministry alone. He always worked as a team. Turn the page. Go to Mark chapter 2. Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Jesus told this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, and you should have been there. You should have seen the way the Pharisees responded to that. Are you kidding me? These guys get all bent out of shape over any little thing, and their first question is, When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven to this paralyzed man, you know what their question is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They give Jesus no credit for being the Son of God. That he is God in human flesh. And so what does Jesus say? He says to this man who's paralyzed, he said, you're healed, stand up and walk. Now, you remember when we talked about this in Mark chapter 2? He wants the man to stand up and walk, not so that everybody there in the community can see that he's been healed. Jesus already knows he's been healed. But the Pharisees don't know it. The Pharisees don't know that when Jesus changes someone on the inside, it makes a difference how we act on the outside. So the, the chapter title we had there was The Outside always reflects the inside. The same is true for us. The same is true for me. When we claim to have a true relationship with the living God of all creation, when we claim to be in a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, it will change the way we live. And so for all those people out there, whether they're inside the Cross Point building or they're outside the Cross Point building, I have... I have I have taken a strong hold on this the last 15 years. And I I remain convinced to this moment that the only tangible evidence in a person's life, the only tangible evidence that salvation has actually taken place in that person's life is if their life has changed. If there's no change you're going to have a hard time convincing me you were in a right relationship with Jesus. Because when Jesus changes us on the inside, it makes a difference how we live and act on the outside. Turn the page, chapter 3. The Pharisees wanted everyone to obey all sorts of man-made rules. Jesus wants us to know there's there's more important things than obeying man-made rules. As important as those are, the most important thing And he wants us to understand this, is that you and I are supposed to have a heart for people who do not know Jesus. Sometimes Christians fall into this trap. We are so busy trying to pat ourselves on the back for all the good we think we're doing, we just ignore that the whole rest of the world is on their way to hell and we have no no compassion, nobody's sharing the gospel with them. As long as we can pat ourselves on the back or each other on the back, we think we're doing a good job. Our title was Having a Heart for People Who Need Jesus. Turn the page. Chapter 4, in this parable of the four soils, it's clear. It's very clear that not everyone on this planet 
not everyone is going to put their faith in Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves that only those men and women, boys and girls, only those men and women, boys and girls who put their faith in Jesus, they are the only ones who are going to heaven. I've had it up to here. I've had it up to here. Every time I hear some news story about, oh, you know, and let's just, grandma's looking down on us from up above. Are you kidding me? I, I know some of those stories, and I won't even give you names of celebrities. And, they, and these things say, well, they're looking down from, I, where do you get that? We are caught up in a culture that actually believes that everybody goes to heaven. They don't. Okay, while I'm on this soapbox, here's another thing. I, I've, ha- I've had it with people telling me everybody's looking down from up above. What? The other thing that I've had it is, um, let's get this straight. When people die, they do not become angels. Let me say that again. When people die, they do not become angels. God created angels. God created people. When people die, they don't become angels. I have had it up to here with people who are, I see these stories on the news or somebody passes away and now, well, now they're one of the angels. (laughs) No, they're not. They are not one of the angels. And they never will be one of the angels. People don't become angels. We've already got angels. And you go to your favorite store that sells greeting cards, and I'll bet you 15 cents you can find a half a dozen cards in there that'll say something about, well, now they're one of the angels. Someday I'm just going to go and grab every card off that rack and take it to the customer service and say, you're telling lies. We do not become angels. So chapter 4, everyone does not go to heaven. And in the Steve Anderson translation, which is not even in the text here, when people die, they do not become angels. And it doesn't matter whether you're two weeks old or 102 years old. When you die, you do not become an angel. Turn the page. Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a story about the demon-possessed man who is living in the cemetery. Do you know how bad your life has to be before the only place you can find to live is between the tombs in the cemetery? I mean, you talk about bottomed out. This demon-possessed man is living in the cemetery. Jesus has this conversation with him. Our chapter title for Mark chapter 5 is this, demonic activity is a real thing. So for all these people, all these friends and relatives that you've got out here that says the devil's a joke, this is just part of our subconscious, there's no such thing as Satan, they are wrong, wrong, wrong. There is such a thing as demonic possession. And the devil is a real thing. Turn the page, chapter 6. Jesus heals multiple people. Some of these people at the end of Mark chapter 6 are actually healed by, imagine the power here. They're they're healed by just touching the fringe on the bottom of Jesus' robe. We name this chapter, Jesus specializes in miracles. 
One of the principles, let me go back, one of the principles of the four that we go over again and again from, in the Gospel of Mark is that because Jesus is the Son of God, he has the power to perform miracles. Turn the page, go to chapter 7. Jesus is involved with another conversation with these rule keepers. We call them the Pharisees. And we came to understand in Mark chapter 7 that righteousness is by faith alone. I become righteous by my faith alone. It's not because of my good works and it's not because of yours. We are either righteous or we're not righteous. We either have faith in Jesus or we don't have faith in Jesus. Turn the page. Go to chapter 8. Jesus feeds thousands of people with a few small loaves of bread and a, few, and a little handful of fish. We named this chapter this. There is no such thing as too little with Jesus. Jesus can feed thousands of people with one or two little sack lunches. And it's a reminder to us, the same principle we had back in Mark chapter 6, because Jesus is the Son of the living God, he has the power to perform miracles. Turn the page. Go to chapter 9. Jesus and his, it seems to be the three leaders of the disciples, James and John and Peter, are up on this high mountain. And when they're up there, just the four of them, when they're up there on this mountain, this voice comes from heaven that says, this is my son. Listen to him. So we named that chapter, Listen to Jesus. And I remember my question when we were in, my question, my application was when we were doing Mark chapter 9, is are you listening to what Jesus is asking you to do? Turn the page, go to Mark chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples are entering Jericho, there's a blind man who calls out for Jesus, and Jesus asks this blind man the same question he's asking you. Jesus looks at this blind man, even though the blind man can't see him, and he says to him, what do you want me to do for you? So my question was, what do you, what do you want Jesus to do for you. We just sort of tiptoe through the tulips just one week after the next. Have we ever asked, Jesus, this is what I want you to do for me. Be very specific. Chapter 11, before entering Jerusalem, and then we're going to go to this morning's text for 12. Before entering Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the nearby village to go and, you remember this story? Go and get a donkey. Now Jesus, we know if we fast forward, Jesus is going to eventually ride on the back of that donkey through the streets of Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. But if you read Mark 11, there's a mind-blowing conversation in here. Before the disciples leave to go get the donkey, Jesus gives them the answer to a question that people in that other village are going to ask him, or going to ask them. Now, who but Jesus could give you an answer to a question that hasn't even been asked yet? Jesus is God's Son. Because He is the Son of the living God, He is omniscient. He knows all things. He, so he, he knows. Let's, let's clear that up before we turn the page to Mark 12. He knows. Over the years, I've had conversations with people who are so embarrassed about the sin that they've committed or the sin that they're caught up in, they're so embarrassed they're even, they don't even want to ask God to forgive them of it. Well, I said, he already knows. You're not going to tell Jesus anything he doesn't know. 
He knows where we fail. And he's there with his arms wide open, ready to forgive us if we're willing to repent. He knows what we're doing on Monday night. He knows what we're doing on Tuesday morning. He knows what we're doing on Saturday noon. He knows. I don't have any idea what you're doing on Monday night, Tuesday noon, or Saturday night. I don't know what you're doing, but Jesus knows. Now, we need to figure out what are we going to take from those first 11 chapters and try and apply to our life? Because this morning we're going to look at chapter 12 and you're going to, I'm going to ask you the same question. What are you going to take from 12? So let's turn the page. Let's go to Mark chapter 12 and I'm going to read one paragraph beginning in verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. Now some of your Bibles, everybody's Bible is, we all don't have the exact same Bible, I get that. But some of us, some of us have this little editorial comment right there, Mark 12, 28 to 34, and then it says either the, the, uh, the great commandment or the greatest commandment. But let me read, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes, and some of you probably have a Bible that uses the word teachers, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So let's picture this. As this scribe walks up to Jesus in verse 28, he is probably already fully aware of previous conversations that Jesus has had that same day with two different groups. There's a group called the Herodians and there's a group called the Sadducees. One conversation is in verse 13. The other one begins in verse 18. It seems to me as we read through this chapter that all three of these conversations, they seem to happen one right after the next in downtown Jerusalem. Look at verse 13, Mark 12, verse 13 and 14. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. Now, some of you have a Bible that says to catch him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly Teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now the Herodians, who are these people? The Herodians are called, well they're called Herodians because they were followers of King Herod. And what they really wanted to happen in this time and place, they wanted to have another Herod for a leader in Judea. Perhaps one of his nephews or grandsons or something. They wanted to keep this, this ancestral lineage of Herod the Great, continue that in Judea. They were rivals, political rivals of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees wanted to have someone who was a descendant of David. Okay, the Herodians are only mentioned three times 
in our entire New Testament. And every time that name comes up, they're in a conversation with the Pharisees. Jump down to verse 18. Let's talk about the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. Now let me read that again. And I'm going to read that again and again and again and again and again until every person sitting on these red chairs gets it. Okay? And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in life after death. Have we got that? They don't believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in life after death. Now listen to the rest of this. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then... They come up with this story. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. If you're the eighth son, eighth brother, you may not want to marry this woman. I'm not saying she was implicated in any of their deaths, but she has had seven husbands in a row die. Last of all, the woman died also. Now, here's the question that makes absolutely no sense. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? And Sadducees came to him who say, there is no resurrection. They don't even believe in the resurrection. But they're trying to trick Jesus with some kind of a question here. For the seven had her as a wife. The Sadducees are also opposed to the Pharisees. But they joined with the Pharisees in order to persecute Jesus. And when they questioned Jesus about the resurrection of the dead, you know what Jesus told them? You don't even know what you're talking about. That's the Steve Anderson translation. Turn with me to Matthew 22, 29. This is what Jesus told these Sadducees. Matthew 22, 29. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. The Steve Anderson translation for that is you don't even know what you're talking about. You know what this is like? I know exactly what it's like in, what year is this? 2019. If Dominic and I drive to Minneapolis tomorrow and we we stop at the uh, Target Field and we go to the ticket office and we say, we want to buy tickets for the Minnesota Vikings Super Bowl. They're not even going to the Super Bowl. That's what this is like. We're asking about something we don't even believe in. And after that game last Sunday, it's over. Okay? Even if we win today, I am still not buying tickets for the Super Bowl quite yet. Sadducees are asking about something they don't even believe in. The Sadducees actually ceased to exist when Rome was destroyed in 70 AD. We've still got, apparently there's still a group of Herodians out there in the Middle East, and and the other group is the Sanhedrin, but there's no more Sadducees. Now remember, Mark 12, the whole chapter takes place during the last week of Jesus' life on earth. It's already been a busy week. This has been a busy week that started in Mark chapter 11. On Sunday, Jesus rides into town on the back of a donkey. The next day, it seems to me it's the next day, he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. The money changers who are cheating people. 
who had come to Passover to celebrate, who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now let me tell you, this whole situation inside the temple started out as a really good thing. There were, there were Jewish people from all over that part of the world who would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And when they got to Jerusalem, they had to sacrifice an animal and sprinkle that blood on the altar. Now, if they had to travel from 100 miles away or 500 miles away, whatever it was, up until a certain point, they had to bring that animal with them. But somebody came up with this idea, well, why don't we just make lambs particularly available in the temple and when you get to Jerusalem you can just stop into the temple and you can buy one it's a lot easier we can go to the work of gathering all these lambs well what started out as a we'd almost call it a ministry to fellow Jewish people but it got out of hand and the people selling these lambs realized hey we can pick up a little money here these people get to Jerusalem, they need a lamb. Instead of charging them $1, let's charge them 10 What are they going to do? Go walk back 100 miles? Let's charge them 20 It got way out of hand. So when Jesus goes into the temple to tip over all these tables of the money changers, that's why, because these money changers have all gone from being involved in a ministry that was actually helpful to now it's nothing more than a profit gimmick where you'd come and you'd be forced to buy one of our lambs so that's all taking place in this last week and then perhaps you know as we track this last week we're not always sure where one day starts and the next one end, or ends and the next one starts but maybe it was the next day when Jesus goes back into Jerusalem in Mark 12 and he's confronted by both these Herodians and the Sadducees the Sanhedrin is willing to do whatever it takes Sometimes you'll see that in a football locker room. We're going to do whatever it takes. The Sanhedrin were willing to do whatever it takes to embarrass and discredit Jesus in downtown Jerusalem. So they chase the Herodians over there to come up with some trick question, and then the Sadducees, and it's, it's just it's become ridiculous. These political leaders and these religious leaders are trying to discredit Jesus every minute of every day, and yet the people are still following Jesus. Matthew 21, 46 says, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, here's the problem. we got the Herodians of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin they realize that they are under the authority of the Roman Empire because they're under Roman occupation and they can't execute anybody. If they try executing anybody, Rome is going to come down on them hard. So what they need to do is they need to convince the Romans that Jesus is a threat to Caesar. And then they think the Romans are going to execute Jesus. John 18, 31, Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So they've got to figure out a way. We can't put Jesus to death. You've got to do it. With one last chance, one last try, they send this scribe in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered well, asked him, which, which commandment is the most important at all? See, 
There's 613 commandments. He's not talking about the 10. He's talking about the laws of Moses. There's 613, and if you're a good Pharisee, you have every one of the 613 memorized. They really don't care which one's the greatest. It's all, it's all a false religion. What they care is, which, which are the top one or two that I really need to obey, and which are the four or five hundred that I can just sort of ignore and still expect to get to heaven? That's what they're really asking. So let me give you some of these examples. What they wanted Jesus to do was to quote some answer that wasn't from the law of Moses, and that didn't happen. If it happened, they were going to claim that Jesus was some kind of a false prophet. Which commandment is the most important of all of the 613 laws of Moses? Would it be, what would it be? What would be the most important? Is it to not use God's name in vain, or is it that I would forget to recite the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 4? A good Jewish person would recite those four or five verses every morning and every night. Would it be that I would, wow, how about if I forget to pray with every meal? How about it would be to not bear a grudge or take revenge? How about it be if I was a farmer that I, would this be the most, the worst thing I could do? Instead of harvesting the whole field, Jewish people understood that they were never supposed to harvest the whole crop. They always left some on the end rows for poor people to come and have that for food. Would that be the, would that be the deal breaker if I didn't leave those end rows? I'm supposed to love strangers. I'm supposed to honor my mom and my dad. I'm not supposed to commit adultery. They're not supposed to do, and this is the, this is the wording, they're not supposed to do any work on the seventh day. That's the law. What if, what if I decide to work on the seventh day? Is that going to keep me from going to heaven? I'm not supposed to eat pork. If I have people come and work on my farm, I'm supposed to pay them every day. The list goes on and on. Of the 612, 613 laws of Moses, of the 248 things that I'm supposed to do, or is it some one of the 365 things that I'm not supposed to do, which one is the most important? That's a good question. Here's the dilemma that legalists face. They, they know you can't keep all 613 laws. You're not perfect. So they focused on the things that they thought were important. They made up their own list of what's more important than other things. And, but Jesus said that's not acceptable. No one can truly love God by obeying rules. You can't do it. Loving God must be from the heart. And it must be every day, all day. It's not something that we turn on and turn off. Loving God is not like the ceiling lights at home where you turn them on and then you, no, no, no. It's, it's not a sometimes thing. Loving God is always. If we truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, it's always. Loving God is the foundation of the Christian life. It's the defining characteristic of what it means to be a true believer. For a Christian, there's nothing more important in life than loving God. And yet no one can perfectly love God and obey all the laws all the time. So this scribe's statement, the scribe figured it out with the answer Jesus gave him. Even though he went there to try and trap him, 
he ended up understanding that Jesus was telling the truth. Now let me close with this. Let me ask you this question. Don't ask the person sitting next to you. I'm asking you. Do you love God? Don't answer it out loud. I'm just asking you. Do you love God? Really? Do you love God with with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength? All your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. If someone was to hire a private detective to follow each of us around for the next two weeks, everywhere we go, they're there. Everything we say, they hear. Every text message we send, they get it. If someone were to hire a private detective to follow each of us around over the next two weeks, would that private detective conclude at the end of two weeks that we really love God? Really? Really? So I want you to think about this, and then we'll close. I want you to think about one thing that you need to change in your life. Not 25 things. If we took the time and if we were going to be honest, we could pass out papers and number them 1 to 25, and I could ask you, give me a list of 25 things you'd like to change in your life. We're not asking that this morning. I'm asking you to think about one thing that you think you need to change in your life in order to love God more than you're loving him right now. And then when you're done thinking about that, whether it's today or tomorrow, do your best to figure out how you can make, take that plan of action and make it a part of your life. Our chapter title for Mark 12 is Loving God. Now your assignment for next week, if you choose to accept it, is Mark 13. Let's close in a word of prayer. And when we're done praying, the ushers are going to take this morning's offering. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have allowed each of us to live in a place and in a time where we have easy access to your word. And God, we thank you for giving us the faith to believe that this word is true. And God, for having us already, many of us, over multiple times have experienced you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. I ask that you'd be with all of us, every man and woman, boy or girl, in the room this morning. I ask that you'd be with us. Give us the desire to make, to make even one change in our life that would better reflect that we love you. Give us the courage to make those changes and the encouragement, Lord, to do so. And we ask, Lord, that you take this offering. We thank you that you've given us above and beyond what we need. We ask that you would help us to continue to be good stewards of these gifts we're about to receive. And we thank you for each gift and each giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.